The Michael Reed Show. Tuesday morning, the 3rd of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The doll is to debate a motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy as Minister for Housing today. The motion will explore how the government performs and how it has responded to a housing crisis which will see almost 4,000 children without a place to call home this Christmas. There will be a lot of talk, a lot of criticism and a genuine shame expressed as politicians consider how the motion could result in a general election on the 28th of December. This is because it will be seen as a verdict on government competence. The expectation is, however, that the motion will not pass and an election will not be held this month. Instead, the government will table an amendment to the motion and the majority will vote in favour of the government. A majority is a majority, albeit a slim majority and this majority it seems will require the support of Noel Grealish and indeed Michael Larry, which could prove to be somewhat controversial for Fine Gael. Let's talk about this uh, with Father Peter McVerry, a Jesuit priest who works with the homeless and if you were watching Primetime last night you'll know that he hates Christmas. A very good morning to you Peter and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Yes. Uh, do you have confidence in the government? In their response to the housing crisis, exactly, absolutely yes. not. Mm-hmm. I think their and their response to the homeless housing crisis has been an abysmal failure. The uh, it's over three years, almost three and a half years now since they introduced their strategy to reduce homelessness, called Rebuilding Ireland. And for the past three and a half years, homelessness has just gone relentlessly up and up and up. The only test by which you can measure whether a strategy to reduce homelessness uh, is working or not is, are the number of homeless people going down? Mm. And if they're not going down, clearly I think any 10-year-old kid would conclude the strategy isn't working. So it's uh, clearly not working, but what really annoys me is the government keep insisting that it is working against Mm. all the evidence. It is working, you just have to give them more time. Now, how much time do they need? We've had three and a half years, uh, so, uh, to my mind, the, uh, the strategy to reduce homelessness and indeed to address the housing crisis uh, has been a failure. We have to acknowledge it's a failure. We have to go back to the drawing board and we have to uh, reinvent rebuilding Ireland. Of course, the government are never going to admit that anything, anything they do has failed. Yeah. And they're certainly not going to admit that with the general election coming up in the next six months. So I'm not expecting uh, much change. And I, I think there's many people listening to you this morning who would say that uh, they agree with you, uh, that they feel uh, that uh, the government has failed on this issue. And there are probably many people in the Dáil that would agree with you. It's quite possible that there's a majority of uh, TDs in uh, the Dáil that would agree with you that the government has failed on this issue. But that's OK. It's acceptable uh, because the Parliament is going to vote that it has confidence in the government to do this today. Unfortunately, self-interest comes in here. Nobody wants a general election over Christmas. Uh, Nobody wants to, uh, particularly the independents, but nobody wants to face the prospect that in the new year they may be unemployed, voted out of office. So I think in all probability the the government will pass. But... Mm how one can vote uh, confidence, it's not actually the minister. I, I think just uh, voting no confidence in the minister is uh, is simply a, 
a strategy. It's not the minister that mm. I have a problem with. It's mm. the government policy. Mm. Minister is only the, uh, the, the, the face of the government policy. And the government recognises that, which is why it says uh, that if it loses this motion, it will go to a general election because it yes. will see it as a, a verdict on its own competence. Well, I think any 10-year-old child could tell you what the verdict is on its uh, on its success in in addressing the the housing crisis. I mean, the minister keeps saying we need to increase supply, and I agree mm-hmm. with him. But we can't wait until supply matches demand. Supply is not going to match demand for at least the next 20 years. We can't wait that long to solve a housing homeless crisis. We've got to do something else. Well, we can. We we, we can. I'm sorry sorry to cut across you, Peter, but it seems as though we can. The National Parliament has confidence in the approach, the policies that the government has adopted in relation to this. At least uh, it's expected that that's how this will be reported on when the vote is taken. Absolutely, but uh, I think clearly uh, this is self-interest. Nobody wants the election and they're going to vote against their best uh, judgment. But I think we have we are we keep saying we have to call individuals to accountability when things go wrong. We have to call governments to accountability when things go wrong. And I would think that uh, this government has failed abysmally, not only in the housing area but also in the health system. The uh, since they came into office, the the hospital uh, crisis has just deepened and deepened and deepened and is now at record levels. I think we have to hold uh, governments to accountability. I'm not pro Fianna Fáil, I'm not Mm. pro Sinn Féin, I'm not pro anybody. (laughs) But I think as a policy, we have to, as a country, hold governments to account. And if they're not, if they're not. if they're not delivering on some of the key things that affect people's lives, like health and housing, if they're not delivering, I think we have to hold them to account and we have to, uh, we, we have to let them know that uh, we, uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't support them. Well, most of us uh, don't have uh, any ability to do anything in, in uh, relation uh, to the government's uh, performance, uh, nor will we have until we get uh, the chance to vote, and that won't be until there's a, a general election. But what about those who have a vote tonight who won't vote? What, how do you feel about them? Uh, the Doyle members who will abstain? Yes. Again, it's, this is all politics. Uh, we're playing politics with people's lives. We're playing politics with people living on the streets. We're playing politics with people in on trolleys. I think we have to, uh, and that's the problem. This, uh, the housing, the homeless crisis, the housing homeless crisis, is I think for the minister and for the government, it's a political problem in a file on the minister's desk. It's the, the human tragedy of all this is lost. They, there is no sense that uh, of the of the human suffering that is uh, being caused. I see no passion, I see no urgency, and no crisis in government response to this housing mm-hmm. homeless crisis, uh, or indeed to the uh, to the to the health the hospital crisis. I just see no. This is just a political problem to be solved politically, but it's not. It's a human problem. A massive suffering. For almost four thousand children will not have a Christmas mm. this Christmas. They will be stuck in an hotel bedroom or in a bed and breakfast or in a family hub. They will not have a Christmas. Uh, and that's the human tragedy. And I imagine many of those children are, are fretting now, just uh, three weeks out uh, from uh, Christmas. But 45 Fianna Fáil TDs will abstain uh, in uh, the Dáil when it comes to the vote this evening. 
every other day. Fianna Fáil uh, is reminding uh, the government uh, that it could do better, that uh, the policies are an abject failure or whatever uh, way they articulate uh, their criticism of government policy in relation to this. Uh, but when it comes uh, to the crunch, uh, they're not going to take a position. Uh, is that something uh, that you'd be able to explain to a child uh, who might be asking you, uh, will Santi be able to find where I am on uh, the 24th of December because uh, I don't have an address? That's right. A lot of the letters from homeless children in hotels, that's what they're asking. Will Santa pass me by? Will he know where we are? And indeed, they may have to move. Some hotels will close over Christmas and the families there will have to move out and maybe not know where they're going to go. Uh, so the children are quite are quite stressed out. And you can imagine a family in an hotel. <coughs> I don't know what they do for Christmas. They have no cooking facility, so they can't cook a dinner. Normally, <coughs> food for the, <coughs> for the family is bought in a takeaway, but there's no takeaways open on Christmas Day. So unless the hotel is, is, is decent enough to cook Christmas dinner for homeless families, uh, they're going to have to buy cold meat and, and not the day before and, and serve that up for their Christmas dinner. Mm. Uh, I watched you uh, telling uh, Claire Byrne about the event in uh, the RDS and how important that is uh, yeah. for people. Uh, and that's uh, the way you'll be spending your Christmas, I take it. No, we well, we we. I'll just spend my Christmas in one of our hostels, which we'll mm. open to homeless people that we know who are who are on the street. Uh, but the RDS is a fantastic uh, service. Uh, they, you know, they have they they look after hundreds, if not thousands, of homeless people. Will come out uh, to for their dinner there. It, they have a shuttle bus to bring them out. It uh, it just makes Christmas Day a, a little bit more tolerable, a little happier. For, for people who are who have nowhere else to go, I think it's a fantastic uh, service and a great credit to the hundreds of volunteers. They turn away volunteers every year. <clears throat> the, the, so many people want to volunteer to serve the dinners and cook the dinners. They they have to turn people away. I think it's a terrific credit uh, both to to them, to the Knights of Columbanus who organise it and also to the Irish people who are mm. so generous and giving up their Christmas Day to do this. Okay, I suppose the other side of all of this is uh, that uh, the government uh, will argue today, as it has been over the last three and a half years, uh, that it is making progress uh, and uh, that it has uh, achieved quite a, a lot in that time frame. And I, I suppose the argument could be that uh, if the government uh, wasn't making these strides, it would be an awful lot worse. That's the argument, and I've no problem with that argument. Uh, yes, the government, not everything they've done has been a failure. They have built social housing. They have put people in homes. They just haven't done enough. It hasn't been enough. So either what they're doing isn't enough, or there's other things they should be doing to address the problem. We have to see this problem reducing. We have to see the number of homeless people going down. We have to see the number of people being given their own housing as apart from private rented sector. Until we actually see that, we have to say that, yes, the government are doing some things right, but either they're not doing enough right or there's other things they must do in order to address this problem effectively. But we're only a decade on from the crash and to the 64 billion euro bill that we got as a result of the money that the banks lost in a bailout that cost us 84 billion. That's right, and the government would like to present this uh, this crisis we have now as a consequence of that austerity, but it's not. 
it is absolutely not. The, what we are experiencing now in terms of homelessness is a direct consequence of government policy, a direct consequence of the failure of government policy, failure to build social housing in, in adequate numbers, the failure to prevent people uh, being kicked out of the private rented sector into homelessness, because that's where most homeless people today are coming from. Mm. They're being kicked out of the private rented sector. We've advocated, and indeed a bill has gone twice to the Doyle to advocate that at least for a small number of years, maybe three years, it should be illegal to kick people out into homelessness from the private rented sector. And that bill twice has been uh, shot down by Fine Gael. They voted against it and it fell. This is a result of government policy, and we have to be absolutely clear about that. This is not the result of austerity, though that didn't help, but it is not the result of austerity. This problem could be solved far more effectively and far more quickly if government policy were to change. Okay, well, the government feels it it will win the vote uh, tonight. Uh, I suppose uh, nothing is certain uh, until uh, we uh, get uh, the results of how TDs vote in uh, the all tonight. Some people might say that this motion is pointless because it won't achieve anything, uh, but uh, it it will, won't it, in that uh, it gives a platform for people to voice their concerns, concerns like the ones you've been voicing uh, this morning, a chance uh, to uh, ask the government to focus on this a, a different way and undoubtedly we'll hear a lot of TDs speak in the Dáil and there's an opportunity for them to send a message home to the government. What would you like to, them to be saying to the government? I'd like them to say, look, you have to admit rebuilding Ireland isn't working. There are parts of it that are working, but on the whole, rebuilding Ireland is not working. We need to sit down, sit down with all the stakeholders, sit down with ourselves, with Focus Ireland, the Simon community, Sit down with the, the, the academics who are ex- expert in the, in the housing uh, area. Sit down and let's rebuild Rebuilding Ireland. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. The Michael Reed Show. Now, the Beef Market Task Force is meeting uh, for the first time today. Angus Woods, uh, chairman of the IFA National Livestock Committee, is on uh, the line to tell us what he expects uh, to be achieved uh, through this task force. Good morning, Angus, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, There's a a lot of history leading uh, up to today's meeting, including uh, the attempt to hold a meeting of uh, the task force in October. Are you confident uh, that farmers uh, will find uh, some uh, justice or some uh, hope uh, in terms of protecting their livelihoods as a result of all of this? Yeah, good morning. Uh, I suppose I suppose you're right in terms of talking about a lot of history leading leading up to this, and and uh, I suppose really when you when you look back over over the time there, there has been a lot of uh, different moments in time relating to beef uh, we, we saw previous uh, incarnations of this, the beef task force or the beef forum uh, set up as well too with the, with the same intention of, of doing what, what this current task force is set up to do which is about putting a bit of transparency into the beef sector and more importantly trying to return a, a viable income to the beef farmers of Ireland. So it's uh, I suppose there is a lot of emphasis being put on this morning and what can happen in a, in a, in a meeting. Uh, one thing's for sure, farmers are, are expecting something that will deliver uh, uh, a price back to farmers which reflects where the market currently is. The market has moved on 
really significantly. When the protest started, for example, when the protest started, uh, the Irish beef price was €32 Euros behind what the English farmers were getting for their for their cattle at the time. A gap has now opened up. Irish farmers are €140 Euros behind where the uh, English farmers are getting for their price, for their cattle. So we expect and we, we want to see a significant increase in prices to reflect the fact that the marketplace has moved on significantly. Uh, and um, how can that be achieved? Well, uh, quite clearly, as as all the evidence is indicating the returns in the market are significantly higher than where they were last August. So as farmers, if we're looking for transparency, we, we expect to see the market. If we're expected to take a low price when the market is down, we also expect to get a, a higher price when the market moves up. And I think that's only a fair, fair assumption to make. OK, do you expect uh, that uh, these talks will convene uh, this morning, uh, given uh, the objections uh, the last time? But, uh, of course, circumstances have uh, changed because uh, C&D uh, lifted uh, the injunctions on uh, the two farmers following on from uh, the protests outside of the factories. Oh, I, cer- I certainly would expect the talks to, to start there this morning. Um, this is not, as I said, this is not the first time there has been talks like this. There was the old form. This is probably a slimmed down version of the OB form in terms of, yes, there are more farmers in there. But interestingly enough, the, under the old B form, the minister actually chaired the meeting. This time, there's a, the minister isn't chairing the meeting, which I think is a mistake. I think the minister should be in there at the heart of it. Is, um, he, is he not attending? Uh, as of yet, that's unknown as to whether the minister is attending. But certainly, I believe the minister should be the person actually chairing these meetings because he is the Minister for Agriculture. He can't wash his hands uh, of the, the current situation within beef prices. Also, in the old beef forum, the three main processors would have been in the room also. So you would have had representatives from the three main processors, along with meeting in the Ireland. They're not present in this one as well, too. So, you know, uh, as farmers are pinning a lot of, a lot of hopes on, on the beef task force delivering, uh, it, I, I wait to see will it deliver because uh, what we've seen so far is uh, a disregard for the, move, the upward movement in the market and uh, I believe the one and only thing that, it, that farmers want out of this at this current time is a, is a significant lift in the beef price because the market has moved on. Yeah, but if uh, the minister doesn't attend and uh, the factories don't uh, attend, what is this other than a uh, uh, get-together and uh, a chance to let off some steam? Well, it needs to be more. It needs to be more than that. I mean, there needs to be the meeting in Ireland are in there uh, representing the factories. Uh, they need to come with something concrete to put on the table here this morning because, uh, as I said, the market has moved on. We, we, as farmers, are expected to take a cut when the market drops. Uh, and all the evidence is there to indicate that the market has moved on significantly. Uh, and uh, what are you talking about in terms of uh, agreeing a price? Are you talking about agreeing a minimum price? Well, what, I, what I'm saying quite clearly is the market has moved. It mm. has, it, like if you compare it with the UK, there has been, since since the protest started, there has been a, an upward movement of €105 Euros per head. Mm-hmm. We expect to see that back to Irish, to Irish farmers as well too. Uh, you're seeing there's a lot of talk about the Chinese market. You're seeing you're seeing prices lifting right across the world, and we seem to be stuck. Uh, 
uh, and farmers, not only are farmers struggling to get a decent price for their cattle, but their farmers are also struggling to get cattle booked into the factories. Now, we need we need to see a system working and operating that is fair to farmers, that farmers get what the market is returning. Mm. Uh, no doubt uh, that's a, a fair and logical argument, uh, but if uh, the market uh, hasn't got the scope to give you the kind of return that you would hope for, are you hoping for a minimum price? Uh, because that would be in breach of competition laws, wouldn't it? No, but, but quite clearly the market has the scope now. This is this is the difference. You see, back back when the protests were, were kicked off, uh, we were probably one of the top prices in Europe, but we're seeing, we, we have seen uh, a massive slippage in our position in there. And as I said, the market has moved up by over 100 euros, 105 euros relative to the UK market. And continental Europe has also moved up. And you're also seeing world market prices moving up. So... I, if if we expect the Irish farmers to track the market on the way down, I would expect the Irish farmers to track the market on the way up, and we need to see that. What about the argument that they're in the wrong game, that this is not a, a market for small farmers uh, and that uh, they'd be better off looking at, at diversifying and maybe going into forestry or other areas? No, I, I don't agree. I, I don't agree with that. I mean, uh, these farmers are doing a, an excellent job producing top quality top quality stock, uh, the market is indicating out there that there is a demand for it. And uh, I would certainly rather uh, Irish farmers were producing beef rather than importing it from somewhere like Brazil where they're burning the rainforest. So, no, these guys these guys are doing a great job. They just need to, they need protection there so that when the market mm-hmm. rises, that they actually get the right that the market is indicating is, is happening. And if you're wrong, uh, can we see uh, or can we expect to see uh, farmers back on uh, the streets protesting? <laughs> Well, these talks are these talks are opening, and uh, I expect to see uh, progress made at the talks. And one of the one of the key uh, asks all along has been about around about transparency. The transparency is there. I'm on the European Meat Market Observatory, so I'm fully aware of what's happening to meat prices right across Europe. And uh, so, I like to keep a, I like to keep an open mind on these. I expect I always expect. Uh, delivery from any of these talks, so I, I'm I'm hopeful that um, that there will be delivery from these talks. But uh, if your hopes are dashed, uh, there will be more protests. I take it. If if our hopes are dashed, of course there will have to be uh, either another round of talks. There'll have to be something to force up the up the price because the if the market is returning it, what we're looking for and what I'm saying is. If Irish farmers are expected to track the market when the market is falling, you would expect Irish farmers to, to get the benefit when the market is rising. So mm. so that's the key to it. We're looking for fair play. We're looking for balance in it. Uh, and I think now is the time to track the market on the way up. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. This morning, Angus Woods, uh, chairperson of the IFA's National Livestock Committee. The Michael Reid Show. Now, Seamus Mulglow from Thistle Cross was walking home uh, from Dundalk in 1976 when he was killed by members of uh, the UDR and uh, the Red Hand uh, Commandos. Uh, the family of uh, Seamus Ludlow have uh, been fighting for justice ever since, and yesterday uh, they took their message to the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris. Earlier this morning I spoke with the family's solicitor Gavin Booth of Phoenix Law. So the family yesterday after some initial correspondence with Drew Harris um, 
agreed to he agreed to facilitate a meeting with the family um, in Garda headquarters. Uh, we attended yesterday, um, and this was the first meeting of a Garda commissioner since the murder in 1976, which was a positive step uh, for the family alone. Um, we met with Drew Harris and a number of his officers, and it was a very positive meeting. Um, we didn't expect it to be as positive. We thought we were going to be hit with the same brick walls that the family have always been hit with in respect of um, the investigation, the Garda reaction to the investigation, the steps taken by the Garda, and all other um, steps since mm. the murder in 1976. But instead, um, it was a very positive meeting, and we agreed that new investigative opportunities do exist. We agreed that uh, Mr. Harris would look at the case to try to find a solution that would accommodate the fact that this was a cross-border murder, and the perpetrators originating from the north. Um, they were arrested in the north. There's evidence in the north. There's also the fact that the murder was perpetrated in the south, um, just outside of Dundalk. So we agreed that there has to be a solution that will accommodate both the north and south, um, and we agreed for a further meeting in January to discuss the outcome of um, the Commissioner's further thoughts on the matter and what he proposes to do. OK, because uh, Seamus Ludlow was murdered a, a very long time ago, uh, probably uh, far too long ago for many people to remember, some 43 years ago in 1976. Uh, but there's a, a lot known about uh, how he died and who was responsible for his death. Yes, uh, following the uh, Aractus, um report, which is the Barron reports, which were um, started back in two, the early 2000s, they examined the murder of Seamus Ludlow along with other incidents such as the Dundalk bombing of 1976, Castle Blaney and the Dublin Monaghan bombings. Those reports found that Seamus Ludlow was uh, not an informer. He was not hmm. uh, killed by the IRA. He was not killed by members of his own family, which the Garda told people for a long time. Instead, it was loyalist paramilitaries working in conjunction with members of the British Army um, through their regiment known as the UDR, which is the Ulster Defence Regiment. Um, four people from Cumber crossed the border that night with unnamed others, which the report states, um, collected Seamus Ludlow outside the Listu Arms in Dundalk and drove him to just outside the Ballymiscanlan house where they murdered him. And those four names were made public by retired Garda John Courtney at uh, the second inquest into Seamus Ludlow's uh, death in 2005. Yes, they were made public there and also in the Oireachtas report. Judge Henry Mm. Byron was so confident that they carried out the murder that he named them in his report. Um, In 1999, those four people were arrested, um, two of which confessed in, in an interview with the RUC two of which drew maps of the scene of where the murder took place. But the PPS in the North decided that no prosecution would happen, even though the RUC at the time recommended the charge of murder. Okay. now, just before Henry Barron published his report, uh, we spoke uh, to the Taoiseach at the time, Bertie O'Hearn, about this information that John Courtney had given to the inquest. And he did say that it would be dealt with in uh, the Barron report uh, and then that it would go on to a justice committee uh, and that it would be dealt with from there on in. But we're talking about an incident that happened uh, back in uh, 2005 and the Barron Report uh, published in 2006. Well, I I suppose, as you know, this report is almost finished. It's just going through the the legal proofing process at the moment. So uh, I suppose it'd be wrong for me to to respond directly to to any of these questions about the Guard investigation into the tragic shooting of of Seamus Ludlow, given that the report uh, is not published yet. But I, I, I would say 
say this. Uh, I appreciate the anguish that this case has caused to the extent of family of Seamus Ludlow. I've met him a number of times and I understand also the concern at the delay in publishing the report, but we want to publish the report to the greatest extent possible in the form that it was received in Justice Barron. But we have to look at some very complex issues relating to the naming of individuals uh, that require both legal and security advice. Um, and there's some further consultation of a legal nature going on in this and uh, I hope to be able to pass the, the full report over. And obviously the question you raised about the, the guarantee, there has been uh, consultation from Judge Barnes' inquiry into that issue which would be dealt with in the report. It would go to the Committee on Justice, Equality, Defence and Women's Rights at the Dáil uh, and issues raised by them, the government, as we've done in all other cases, have acted with them uh, to, to, to follow up any other issues, and we'll do the same in, in, in this case. But I think there are issues uh, that have to be answered out of this, so the questions uh, that you're raising will, will not be lost. They are in the report, uh, I know that for a fact, so the, these are issues we'll have, to, um, we'll have to, to, to follow on on. And here we are today, and still there's been no action. That must be very frustrating from the family's point of view. Oh, it's, 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 it's the most devastating news that any family can receive. But not only that, we need to take it right back to 1976. Three years after the murder in 1979, the RUC passed those names to the Garda, who instead did, took no action with those names, but instead put out the rumour that it was the IRA, that Seamus Ludlow was uh, an informer, and that his own family had killed him, which caused untold hurt to the family. Not only that, it split the family for a number of years. Um, you know, some of the family blamed each other, some blamed the IRS, some believed that, you know, this rumour that he could have been an informer, but all of this was proven to be untrue. And the most devastating news which came to light was that the guards knew who was responsible the whole time. They knew three years after the murder and 10 years after that special branch, one of the men at a funeral mm. in, in County Down confessed to the murder to a member of special branch uh, in the north. And again, this came to light that no steps were taken then by either the RUC or by the guards. Instead, the guards perpetrated the lie that Seamus was an informer. It was the IRA and it was members of his own family, all the time having that evidence. And there's always been this fear that the state has been colluding with uh, the killers of uh, Seamus Ludlow. Uh, and when I say the state, uh, obviously uh, there's uh, the question of British collusion, uh, which was found to be the case in uh, the Barron report uh, and uh, as to whether Seamus Ludlow was a member of the IRA or not and as to whether that mattered or not uh, seemed uh, to be a pertinent aspect of this. Uh, but uh, do you think that there's any relevance uh, in terms of uh, the Irish government's attitude at the time? Because uh, the Guardian investigation was stood down uh, a number of days after Seamus Ludlow was killed, uh, and this was under the Cosgrave administration. Yeah, well, you know, at this stage, well, firstly, we need to start with Mr. Seamus Ludlow. Uh, the Byron report totally vindicated the fact that he was an innocent civilian going about his normal life. Um, he was not related to, in any way linked mm. to the IRA or any other organisation. In fact, he was a member of Fine Gael who played Santa at Christmas for all the local children in Dundalk. So many families in Dundalk actually have a picture of their family with Seamus Ludlow, who was then playing Santa for all the children. Mm. So Seamus Ludlow was totally innocent, and the Barron report vindicated that position. It also vindicated the fact that it wasn't the family, he wasn't an informer, and he had no link to anything. Instead, it was a random sectarian killing perpetrated by members of the British Army and Loyalist paramilitaries working in conjunction with each other. As for the role of the guards in this murder, you know, the guards were given the evidence and instead chose not to act on it at all times. 
there is questions there, and that's what uh, Judge Henry Byrne recommended at the end of his report, that there be two further commissions of investigation in relation to the guard handling of the case to ascertain exactly why the guards took the most steps, why files were not retained, and why all all the guards, in fact, took no action in relation to this, but mm. instead kept perpetrating those lies, which, again, hurt the family and probably alienated the community from the extremist Ludlow case. And we all believed, uh, I think at the time, uh, the family certainly believed that something would happen in terms of getting to the truth, in terms of getting justice for Seamus at the time of the publication of uh, the Barron Report. Uh, and most certainly after the publication of uh, the Oireachtas Justice Committee's report. Yes, well, exactly. You know, um, we under, you know we've been waiting on one the further commissions of investigation and steps by Garda Sheikhana. Yesterday's meeting was a positive in that, in regards to that. It was the first time that a sitting commissioner firstly met with the family and offered the family positive hope. Instead of closing them down, he instead offered them hope and offered them an opportunity and said that he would look afresh at the case and would come back with firm proposals to them in the early new year. So this is positive. Mm. But there still is a role for the Justice Minister in this case, which he hasn't. Um, so far taken on board. You know, the the Joint Committee of the Oireachtas, who worked with Judge Henry Barron on this, these reports, made further recommendations. Um, these recommendations have not been acted on by either Francis Fitzgerald or Charlie Flanagan. And it's, it's truly shocking that when a Joint Committee and a retired judge produces a report calling for further action, that these justice ministers take no further action. It's actually quite disgraceful. And if the commissioner instructs the guardie to take action and this is investigated uh, further. What, what, what is the family hoping for? Is it a question of setting the record straight so many years after the terrible murder of Seamus Ludlow? Or is there any prospect of justice and people doing time for his killing? Well, that's the question with all families who are bereaved by the conflict in the north. Um, you know, there's a different processes and different families even among each other all want different things. Some want the truth. Some want the North, uh, northern authorities held responsible. Some want the southern authorities held responsible. Some want prosecutions. Um, as for the Ludlow family, what they firstly want is all the documents to be examined, both north and south, in relation to the murder of Seamus Ludlow. They also want an acknowledgement of what actually happened in an official state record to show what exactly happened to Seamus Ludlow. Right now, you know, the case, while we do have some information in respect of Judge Henry Barron's reports, we don't have all the information. Uh, Barron in his reports was critical of the lack of cooperation from the Northern authorities and the fact that the guards made a number of failings, and that's why he called for further commissions of investigation. Um, but like all families, you know, steps are now being taken to deal with the past, and we're hopeful that there will be a solution that will both take in both the North and the South. So anybody that looks at this case will have access to all the documents in relation to the murder of Seamus Lovell. Gavin Booth is a solicitor with Phoenix Law, which is representing the family of Seamus Ludlow. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Mick from Fingal was in touch to thank us, Michael, for having Father McFerry on the programme this morning. He said he made a big impression on him when he saw him on television last night and he was delighted to hear him on the station today. He feels it's time that ordinary people listen to people like Father McFerry, people with vision. 
he feels that the whole problem with housing, uh, Mick does, feels that the whole problem with housing goes back to the time when the councils stopped building houses for the ordinary working people. And he feels then they allowed rich landlords to come into the market and make a fortune out of houses. He says, look at our history. We've had enough of landlords in the in the country making money on the back of people. Uh, and he just says thank you for that, for having Father McFerry on. All right. Uh, well, uh, I suppose we try to hear from uh, different views and uh, different people all at the time. Uh, we should be hearing from uh, Damien English. He, he wasn't uh, available to us uh, this morning, the Junior Minister for Housing. Uh, hopefully he'll be speaking to us on the programme tomorrow after the vote, after the Minister survives. Kevin, on the other hand, phoned in also about the same interview and he was a bit disturbed that the whole time that Father McFerry was on the radio with you this morning, he never once mentioned, says Kevin, what Christmas is really all about. Okay, he hates Christmas, Father McFerry does, but to Kevin it's one of the most special time of the year and he says regardless of Christmas, there's still going to be homeless people unfortunately and people who are hungry. We have to do the best we can to sort it out. And he says that Santa Claus finds children no matter where they are. And it's very important to get that message out to people. Uh, Children shouldn't be worrying about Santa. The Santa will come. And he says that if a priest hates Christmas, how will that Uh, how will anyone else be expected to like it that Jesus Christ is the main person and that should not be lost in all of this discussion All right. well uh, it's been lost on uh, some people uh, who are on the streets and uh, have nothing to do and no services available to them Uh, and uh, indeed uh, families then who are in hotels and don't have uh, somewhere to call home and can't make a dinner and there's nowhere to go for dinner on Christmas Day Uh, so I suppose that's the point uh, that Peter McVerry was making on the programme A texter says, listening to Father Peter, we will not get anywhere until we deal with the cause. The reason why this is happening, anyone can fall on hard times. This is why we must examine the root cause. Okay, let's uh, talk uh, about uh, bingo because as you've been hearing uh, there's a protest uh, that's uh, due to take place outside of uh, Leinster House uh, this morning and uh, we're joined by Naomi Riley, spokesperson for the Save Our Bingo campaign. Uh, This is because of new legislation which is uh, to be introduced tomorrow, I think it is, Naomi, uh, which uh, you believe could see the closure of bingo halls right across the country. Definitely, yeah. Why is that? This new legislation, uh, which will uh, introduce a price limit of 50% on the proceeds of each line of bingo that people... Um, basically, like what it's going to do is it's going to cut the price pay out uh, by 50% so of the takings, and it will make it impossible to run the games of bingo, and people will be interested to come, um, and they won't watch the game where they lose half the money before they even start playing the game. Okay. Um, uh, you're, on, you're on a mobile phone there, uh, Naomi. Uh, we're going to uh, come back to you in a, a minute. Uh, we'll try and improve on that line, but it's a bit difficult to hear what you're saying at the moment. Uh, so we'll try to uh, improve on the quality of uh, that line uh, and hear more about why that prize money is being cut by 50%. Uh, let's hear some more of uh, the comments uh, while we try to do that. Uh, what else have we got we for just, us there, We'll Marie? stick with the bingo mm-hmm. for the moment, okay, Michael, yeah. because mm-hmm. we did get a couple of comments in mm-hmm. just in advance of the interview. Uh, we'd a text in from uh, Mary who says, I 
just love my bingo mm. every week, Michael. And I really hope that this doesn't happen, that the bingo can still keep running. Uh, another listener says that bingo is a huge outlet for many senior citizens and it's their only outlet for mm. some of them that they look forward to it during the week and that every effort must be done to make sure that bingo continues and that it operates on, you know, that it still has a profit to be able to run Mm. because otherwise there wouldn't be any point in running it if it's running at a loss and I think that's the concern of this listener. (laughs) Another caller phoned in this morning to say, uh, this came in from Geraldine to say, Mm. Michael, has the government not enough to be doing uh, to tackle the real problems in this state mm. like homeless and housing uh, crisis and also the health crisis without going after the poor bingo players. All right. Well, so uh, that's <laughs> a lot of bingo players obviously listening to us uh, this morning. Uh, Naomi is obviously a bingo player herself and she's back on uh, the phone. Uh, why, why do you believe cutting the prize money will result in the closure of uh, the bingo halls, Naomi? Uh, basically because, um, uh, you know, before people even start to play the game, um, the prize money's already going to be cut by half. Mm. So it's going to, like, um, deter a lot of people from going there to play bingo. And, and it's basically, some people, it's their only, like, social outlet, their only chance to get out of the house, to meet their friends and enjoy themselves. And how much, um, how much would you typically win, I, I mean, if you had a full house or uh, top prize? Like that can differ from club to club and mm. night to night. Um, like you can win between like seventy euro for a full house to a hundred to mm. maybe a thousand. Um, but in saying that, um, you can have more than one person check on that full house. Of course, yeah. So that money mm. is automatically split again. Mm. Um, but I mean, if at the higher end of the scale it was to be cut from a thousand to five hundred, would that really stop people from going? Because I thought a lot of people looked on bingo as a way of meeting up with other people and as a social outlet rather than a way of gambling. Yes, more than likely it would stop a lot of people from going because you're still going to be paying the same price that you were before for your books. That's not going to change. What's going to change is the prize money that is being split by 50%. So mm. it will deter a lot of people. And as I said, like, the less people then the go, um, the prize money obviously would be lower um, and lower yet again, um, that it will end up closing the bingos. And people won't have anywhere to go. Like, the elderly people won't. That's their outlet. It's okay. my outlet. Right. And, uh, and the bingo halls are, are run by charities. So... 50% can be used uh, uh, as prizes under uh, this change in the legislation. Uh, the other 50% then is split between the charity that runs the bingo halls uh, and uh, 25% then would go to the National Lottery, is it? Um, oh, um, 25% go to the National Lottery in that, and, and charities? No, 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 that's not what happens. That's more than likely with um, the other bingos like... Um, hold on one sec... Um, the the TV bingos and that kind of stuff, but mm. um, definitely not like the ones in the clubs. These are all like for local people, um, and there has been a lot of bingos that have closed down um, due to people not going to play. You know, um, but uh, nothing will go uh, to charities, um, and um, 
that that that's uh, a sure thing, you know. Um, okay, but that but that is the objective of this change in the legislation that fifty percent would be used on prizes, and uh, that uh, the other fifty percent then would be split uh, between philanthropic and uh, charitable organisations. No, no, um, definitely nothing goes to charity, um, and. Uh, and uh, it, it it wouldn't it, it will go to the the bingo to the bingo hall. You 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 believe that? Okay, uh, I, I think the legislation uh, would see uh, the money being divided up otherwise. Uh, but you'll be protesting outside of Lancer House today to try and save bingo in itself and uh, the bingo halls uh, that run uh, the bingo for the players. Uh, and uh, what, what's going to happen now? There'll be uh, quite a few people uh, on Kildare Street, I take it. Yes, definitely. There's been buses of picking up people from bingo halls and that this morning. So we all meet in there. And as I said, like... It, it is across Ireland as well, so everybody like is getting on social media and hopefully signing all the petitions and uh, getting in touch with the local TDs. And basically, like what we're trying to do is urge as many people to come to today for half ten um, and to help us, like to stop this bill from going through. Okay. Um, so the more people that we can have there, but definitely as the government is saying, like bingo is meant to be uh, gambling, it's definitely not gambling. Um, we do go there to socialise and whatever. So no, and and this fifty percent that they're that they're thinking of doing is definitely not going into a charity or anywhere like that. This is all going into the government itself. Okay, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment and uh, thanks for that. Naomi Riley, spokesperson uh, for the group organising this protest, uh, the Save Our Bingo campaign. Now let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us, Marie. Michael, we'll go back to some of the comments in relation to that no-confidence vote in the Housing Minister. Sean from Drogheda phoned in and he thinks the Fianna Fáil are a disgrace if they do not vote in favour of the no-confidence vote. How can they not do it when they see the government's abysmal record on housing? The numbers are just going up all the time when you look at the homeless figures, says Sean. Margaret says how many people need to be on the streets before the government really Realises that their rebuilding Ireland plan is not working. They need to start building council houses quicker, says Margaret. Tom says there are many people just about keeping their heads above water and are a week's wages away from being out on the streets. So many in rented accommodation worried sick about the rent going up. Theresa from County Meath phoned in. Mm. I don't think Minister Murphy or indeed Minister Harris are capable of the jobs they are in. I feel it's time for them to go. Will the housing and health problems ever be solved? It annoys me when someone discusses it. They both think that they are doing fine says Teresa. Okay, well as I mentioned earlier on we'll speak uh, with uh, Damien English uh, tomorrow after the vote uh, tonight and I'm sure uh, if like on other occasions uh, Damien English is as forthright as he has been he'll be saying I agree with you, you're right everything you say about the housing crisis is right, I agree with you but you just have to give us time, you can't do it overnight and we will get there, we are getting there we're achieving a lot, we've uh, taken more people out of homelessness in the last uh, year than would have uh, been the case ever before and uh, that needs to be recognised. Anyway as I say we'll hear from uh, the Minister on the programme tomorrow but thanks for that Marie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. The Michael Reed Show.
Call Michael now. 1850 715 958. Now, Gardaí continue uh, to interview Lisa Smith following her return uh, from uh, Turkey after spending a period of uh, time in uh, Syria. They had uh, 48 hours uh, to interview Miss Smith. Uh, that was to run out at 11 o'clock, uh, but uh, she'll continue to be interviewed for another 24 hours as an application was made to, to the courts for that to happen and has been granted and uh, she will remain in Kevin Street Garda Station for that period of time while Gardaí continue with uh, the questioning of uh, the ISIS bride as she has been described. Uh, let's talk about uh, this and related issues. Indeed, let's uh, talk about crimes against humanity in Syria with Dr Declan Hayes, who's a humanitarian who has travelled to Syria on many occasions and has written about about his experiences in Syrian witness and Irish eye in Syria. He's on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. You uh, talk uh, about crimes of humanity or against uh, humanity in uh, Syria but uh, the people uh, who should be answering questions are, are many fold including politicians, barristers, journalists and NGOs. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, your experience in Syria because uh, you've been quite... Uh, often there and in many parts of the country over a long period of time. Yeah, well, um, I I got into this for humanitarian reasons and I brought, for example, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace there, amongst others, and they were quite emotional with what they saw. You know, when when you meet the families of 70 Shia children who were blown up uh, by ISIS, as Claire Daly and Mick Wallace uh, does, one tends to get emotional. Mm. Uh, when one goes into schools in Homs, where I brought uh, Wallace and Daly, and meet uh, the survivors of suicide bomb attacks uh, by ISIS, uh, one gets emotional. And that's only the, that's only the shallow end of the pool. So I prefer not to not to go down uh, too far that road. What ISIS have done, what, what, what Lisa Smith's friends have done, is, is, uh, belongs in medieval pictures of hell. Crucifying children, getting children to crucify adults, gang raping, uh, American, um, aid workers, and so on. Right? Mm. Uh, when, when did you first visit Syria? Because um, it's a very different I, country I, now than, let's say, it was a decade ago. I, I went there. I, I went there first on Easter 2014, and I was the first foreigner into uh, Malula, the Christian town of Malula, after the Syrian army and Hezbollah freed it from these uh, savages. They looted everything. They they destroyed uh, anything they didn't loot and sell on Western markets. Any icon or or uh, religious symbol, they destroyed. So so that was. That was my first time there. How did you manage to How did you manage to get into Syria? Because I think most people were going in the other direction. Well, well, um, again, I went to a, a meeting uh, in um, London in uh, late two thousand three, and the Archbishop of Northern Nigeria, who I hope is the next Pope, spoke. And he, what he said, the witness he he said made made the hair stand up at the back of my head, and I figured I'd have to do something on that. So I I, I uh, worked away at it. I got in touch with Syrian people, mm. um, 
I brought Syrian people to England where I had to put up with the ISIS people threatening to cut my head off as I had to put up in, in, in Dublin when I brought um, uh, Syrian witnesses to the Irish Parliament and also to Buswell's Hotel. Um, and um, I, I just uh, persevered. So getting a visa is not easy, but um, if any politicians like Peter Fitzpatrick uh, want to go there, um, I, can, I can facilitate that, you know? So I, 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 I wasn't going to, to look at the ruins or gawk at the survivors. I was going to help. Mm. And I've raised uh, quite a lot of money uh, for a great Limerick nun who's in the Italian hospital in uh, Damascus, uh, under bombardment for for about five years, uh, the Salesians are doing fantastic work in in Syria. The Franciscans, the Cork Franciscan in Aleppo, but they're too busy. They they want to be helping people, if you understand. Mm. Not um, you know, not showboating around. Mm. So you know, to me, they're the real heroes. Okay. Uh, you had uh, a delegation uh, visit uh, an Oireachtas committee from Syria. Uh, they mentioned uh, your visits uh, to the country and how uh, you wrote about them in uh, the book. Uh, but uh, this is a, a very complicated uh, country, a very complicated war, uh, and very difficult for most of us to understand. Uh, it, it's not uh, war in the sense that you would normally understand one side against the other because there's many factions at play. That's right. That's right. Every 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 factionable imaginable, right? Now, uh, the best way to the best way for people in Loud and Mead and and, and and South Armagh to understand it and there's even uh, ISIS characters in South Armagh of all places. Um it's just, just think, you know, uh, uh, straightforward, good and bad, right? Now, when you start chopping the heads off people, uh, gang-raping them, um, turning them into sex slaves, as happened where Lisa Smith lived, you should be saying, well, hold on, there's something wrong with this. And before Lisa Smith went to, went to Syria, all of that was well known. It was, it was no secret, Okay. Now, um, Lisa Smith is, is a very junior player um, in all of this. And the, the, um, the email you quoted there uh, that I wrote, I also mentioned the Irish Rangers. Hmm. It was not the job of the Irish Rangers to bring her back from uh, Turkey. That was the job of the Turkish police to stick her on an aeroplane when IRA fellas were sent back from England. It was, it was the English uh, special branch brought them, not the SAS. Because yeah. she was being deported from Turkey. Yeah, well, well, well uh, yeah, on a Turkish Airlines mm. plane, which is Turkish sovereign, sovereign country. So it's the job of the police. It's not the job of the SAS or the Rangers. So that's showboating by... Um, by Mr. Leo Varadkar and Mr. Simon Coveney. Okay, but uh, she remains an Irish citizen and uh, as we've been hearing time and again, her little daughter is an Irish citizen and whatever about anybody else, little Rakaia cannot be uh, considered to be guilty of any crime. Well, well, again, I've I've spent quite a lot of my own money, as it happens, uh, bringing uh, uh, Syrian Palestinian uh, orphans uh, from Turkish orphanages to um, 
back home to uh, Damascus, right? And mm. um, using using back channels, the, the Turks don't want to push this one because they they shot down all their relatives when they were trying to cross the border. Now, all of those children, every children, inc- including Lisa Smith's children and and hundreds of other children that I've met in Syria, they're going to be traumatized all their lives, right? Okay, mm. every every last one of them. But what the Irish are doing is because you have an Irish passport, you're being, you know, uh, Lisa Smith and her daughter are being put on a higher pedestal than anybody else. So I'm interested in the vast majority of the victims who live in in government-controlled uh, Syria. I'm not going to be taking uh, uh, the bus up to Dundalk to, to, to look for that stupid woman and, and her daughter, and, and nor is anybody else. That type of extremism uh, comes from uh, comes from uh, the so-called rebels, mm. right? Uh, who've been indoctrinated uh, worse than the Waffen SS, right? So, so uh, Peter Fitzpatrick, who's their spokesperson, uh, he should explain why he voted against the uh, motion of Claire Daly and Mick Wallace in in the Oireachtas to try to get justice. For all those children, uh, the Shia children from Fua and Kafraya, and the Alawian Druze and Christian children uh, from Homs that I already mentioned. These people going into kindergartens and blowing them up and thinking it's a great thing to do. You know, I, I have my reservations uh, about that. The lady's name is Lisa Smith. If you just go across the border into Armagh, uh, there was a certain Anne-Marie Smith and Anne-Marie Smith was a young uh, single mother from Armagh City who was lured into Glentorn Football Club and tortured and murdered for no other reason uh, than uh, she was a Catholic. Now, uh, Francis Brawley, um, the GAA guy, uh, a friend of Peter Fitzpatrick perhaps, went out with his um, Anne-Marie's sister, Geraldine. Now, those loyalist women who got Anne-Marie Smith, you know, I'm, I'm not going to build an altar to them. Mm. So I, I, I don't think we should build an altar to uh, Lisa Smith, who was who has who is being treated with kid gloves by the special branch in Kevin Street Garda Station. They had the family in there for a meal um, uh, yesterday, you know, of mm. tea and muffins mm. or whatever. Now. Um, the thing there is, is is that they did this big circus to bring her home. Lisa Smith is irrelevant to most things, right? But they did this big circus and carnival with the SAS and the Rangers to bring her home. And it's all a farce because Ireland is as complicit as most other countries in the crimes of you against the Syrian mm. people. And that goes back to the part of your email that you sent to us that I, I mentioned at the beginning uh, and you say that politicians, barristers, journalists, NGOs, all of us have to take some responsibility for what's happening in, in Syria. Uh, I need to check uh, the record because I don't recall uh, the Claire Daly McWallis motion or how Peter Fitzpatrick uh, That, that was uh, December 7, 2017. Okay, and I'm not doubting yeah. you but uh, obviously uh, we would need to check the record 
records uh, to report on oh, that. Yeah, I, I, I checked the but, but but you are, you are, you have obviously taken issue with Peter Fitzpatrick and how he has been representing Lisa Smith's family because it's Lisa Smith's mother and uh, her brother who have been uh, in contact with him and they're very concerned uh, about uh, Lisa Smith's mother's granddaughter, if you like, uh, who she has never met. Yeah. Yes, yes. Now, if 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 Peter, if Peter Fitzpatrick, who's supposed to be pro-life, if, if if he was an honest player in this, and maybe no politician is honest, he would have approached Imelda Munster, the other TD from Loud, uh, who voted with Daly's um, Daly's uh, um, motion, motion yeah. as mm-hmm. well as Jerry mm-hmm. Adams mm-hmm. and uh, Fergus O'Dowd, and they would have done a joint approach. You understand? But to me, it looks like, for whatever reason, he's playing one side of the coin. Well, now, well, the, the the family spoke to him. We asked Peter Fitzpatrick. I mean, this is the uh, way this panned out, as I understand it, Declan. The family had spoken to him. We asked Peter Fitzpatrick then if he would speak to us. He came on, and uh, it was a, a, as much of a surprise to us as it was to anybody listening that Peter Fitzpatrick spoke on behalf of uh, the family. But the family asked him to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fair enough. But if if Peter Fitzpatrick is, uh, you know, as is mm. obvious from, uh, I, I've I've gone up with cap in hand mm. to everybody, everybody, mm. with no shame, trying to get help wherever I can, mm. and I'm not, you know, I'm I, I'm, I'm more fortunate than um, than a lot of other people, and um, if Peter or if Peter Fitzpatrick is mm. listening. Ask him to approach Imelda Munster, Jerry Adams, Fergus O'Dowd, and so on in in County Loud. Right now, uh, Fitzpatrick. Well, the family asked him to articulate their thoughts yeah, the, on their behalf, and he did that. Now, I, I mean, in the same way that so, I wouldn't so, be so calling it to quit. So I'd like to know where Peter Fitzpatrick stands on this issue. Right, he voted against Claire Daly's. Um, uh, motion as did okay well we, we 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 can put that to peter fitzpatrick right, yeah good, mm. yeah. good. <laughs> okay uh, but uh, at the same time uh, i mean we're not going to call into question peter fitzpatrick's integrity in representing the family uh, acting on a request that he got from a local constituent yeah but but again in well 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 uh, if we're going to talk about the dundalk constituent mm. uh, i'm i'd be more concerned uh, about uh, uh, the late Mr. Sasaki, uh, who was murdered by ISIS in Dundalk, and the three, the three Dundalk people who were stabbed and who weren't even mentioned in the Oireachtas. But Peter, people before Prophet said the Dundalk attack had two victims: Mr. Sasaki, the Japanese man, and the Muslim community. Three Dundalk people were stabbed. Right, and I can guarantee you now that more Irish people are, you know, uh, more Irish people would be victims of this because we're, you know, mm. uh, we're not even at the end of the beginning. Okay, mm. you believe there's, there's a long way to run with this. Do, yeah. do, do you believe there are ISIS supporters in this country, and many of them? I know there are. <laughs> you know, so so it's it's um, you know. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there's plenty of them, and, and I know who some of them are. Uh, want to uh, send me to to meet my ancestors, right? Now, there's a certain gentleman. Uh, he's he he doesn't live here, but his name is uh, Omar Bakri Mohammed, and he's the chap who who uh, 
who enlisted Terry Kelly, the suicide bomber from Dublin, right, mm. who blew himself up in, mm. in, in Iraq. Kelly, and Kelly, said, yes. Mm. And he said uh, Irish, Irish um, airport should be bombed. That's what this other character said, right? Mm. And the London bombers, who organised themselves from Dublin, they, uh, according to newspaper reports, they were looking at, at doing a similar uh, gig in Dublin. So that's going to happen, you know, a soft mm. target. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, if, if you're going to chop up people on London Bridge, why not chop them up in Dundalk or Drogheda, where where uh, and Drogheda has also sent uh, ISIS fighters okay. who were killed by the Syrian army. OK, uh, well, it's a, a chilling thought, uh, but uh, very relevant in, in the context of uh, the current topic of uh, discussion. I've actually run out of time. Declan, come back and talk to us another time, will you? Thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, no, I much appreciate that. Very interesting. Dr. Declan Hayes, who is a humanitarian and has uh, travelled to Syria on many occasions. Now, soccer is in complete disarray in uh, this country with uh, John Foley yesterday declining uh, the opportunity to become uh, interim CEO of uh, the FAI. Let's talk about this with Fergus O'Dowd, uh, who is the Fine Gael TD that chairs the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport. Good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd. Good morning to you, Michael. Thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what, what, what did you make of this decision yesterday? Well, he made the decision. He was expected to take up the appointment yesterday morning. He had been there, I understand, from reading the papers last week. Um, and clearly it was a decision he made at the last minute. I would presume that he's not going to take up the job of interim CEO. Um, so that's that's what he did. So it probably plunges the organisation into a very difficult situation again, that they have no acting CEO and they don't have their full board appointed as yet and particularly the emphasis on the four independent directors, mm. one of whom would be the independent chairman of the board, which is a big change. <clears throat> so my point of view, Michael, is that the board should proceed with the appointment of the independent chairperson as soon as possible. <clears throat> and I understand that there are other, there are a lot, apparently there is a, that there are a number of people, apparently, I've been told, in, the country who could take up the job of interim CEO, who would have the experience and the skills necessary, and who may be very much available. Right. Uh, I see Paul Lennon uh, reporting uh, this morning uh, that uh, debts in uh, the FAI could be as much as €60 million, and uh, that as a result of that, uh, they may have to sell uh, their portion in uh, the Aviva Stadium. Yes, and that would be obviously a huge asset that they would be losing, but then they have huge debts. They are a commercial company. They're not They're not a voluntary body. So I would presume there are pressures on them in relation to, you know, corporate uh, governance and issues like that in relation to, you know, trading and, you know, trading as a company and all of that. So I understand they have been getting money from, from FIFA, uh, you know, in terms of the Football Association internationally supporting supporting them very significantly. I understand again that the AGM, which has been postponed a number of times, <clears throat> will probably be held now, I believe, after Christmas 28th of December and that the audited accounts or sorry, the accounts that are presumed to be audited mm. are going to be presented I don't know if they are actually, but the accounts will be presented on, on I think this weekend. That's what we're expecting anyway. The 2018 accounts will be known this weekend. Yes, they will be, yes. I, I don't know what stage they're at, but the transparency of 
you know, what the book show uh, would have to be in those accounts. So mm. that certainly would inform uh, the AGM. Okay, and when uh, the AGM is held in 2020, will they have the 2019 accounts? Well, that's that's a that's a good question, Michael. That's 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 a good question. Um, I think the key thing is that uh, there's so much controversy about the you know the, the the recent history of the FAI that it's only a fresh and complete start. Um, and the complete change of nobody should be on the board who has been involved in the board previously, regardless of how excellent their services may have been. Um, so I think that's the first thing. So, um, and obviously the four independent directors, uh, there'll be 12 in total. So uh, with the independent chairperson, I think the independent chairperson should be a very important person, whoever that's going to be. There was a competition nationally for that, mm-hmm. 150 people. I understand applied for it, and um, that, according to the press reports that I'm reading, there is a shortlist available for what they call the nominations committee, and I would hope that they would proceed with a nomination as early as this week because that's the only way I think they can get, uh, you know, ensure real change in their organisation, a new independent chairperson, and then obviously the other independent directors, and then to a point, obviously urgently and then another interim CEO and then advertise for the main position of permanent sure, who CEO. would do it? Pardon? Who, who well, would I do think it? there's lots of people who have an interest in, in, in soccer, mm. have an interest in the organisation. Um, but they may not be as interested in the political <clears throat> interference as they might see it. Well, that's one way of looking at it, Michael, but uh, the interference that uh, the, the, the interference is called accountability, that's mm. the other way of looking at it. Fair enough, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it is accountability for mm. the Rockers. Uh, they're coming before my committee. They are accountable to us uh, for the two point. Uh, it was two point nine. Now it's two point four five million they spent. The fifty million that they got from the taxpayer uh, since two thousand and eight. That's that's the accountability bit. They may call it interference. Um, I think it's it's in significant support. Not enough, obviously, uh, to young people and and to coaching for young people and also to, to, to women's soccer, that's outside of what might be termed a professional game. And um, you know, that's 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 our job is to make sure that that's done properly. The cosy audit uh, arose as a result of I asked at the at the meeting last mm. early this year in April that they would do a forensic audit of their accounts, which is broader than the state funding. And that's what's happened. Now we don't know the outcome of that yet, other than it's gone to the Gardaí. So there are huge issues, mm. uh, and I think a new chairperson uh, will help bring about, you know, a change of public opinion. All right, uh, and uh, if the government uh, gives the FAI three million a-, a year, how much do you think the FAI gave John Delaney uh, as uh, an exit package? Well, that's what we should be finding out apparently this weekend as well. That that will be. Uh, I mean, there's been rumours, figures. You've probably seen them yourselves. It looks like, at least what I've seen in the paper, is 340,000. I don't know how much he got. But clearly, uh, clearly, it's a matter of huge controversy. And I think the, the Cozy report also, as far as I'm aware, uh, examined that issue as well. So, um, look, the, the whole thing is an absolute mess. But if you look at what happened mm. with the Olympic Council of Ireland, um, and you had Mr Hickey there, when, when Sarah Keane took over, <clears throat> it changed everything and there's total credibility with that organisation and everybody supports it and I believe the same the same will happen with the FAI as well mm. uh, When? 
Well, <laughs> that's their decision, Michael. I think they can start this week. That's my belief. I think well, when, yeah, yeah. So you believe it should happen this week? Well, I hope it does, because if it doesn't, it's going to drift on and on and on and on. I mean, the, you know, it's like, you know, the, the ship has to have a new captain, and that's, you know, that's that's what I think this person will do, um, and that's that's the only way it will change. That's what I believe. Mm. Uh, do you think Niall Quinn will be the next CEO? I, I, he's certainly a very capable man, a man I have great respect for. Um, I would think he'd be a fantastic CEO. He's a lot of experience of running clubs, I think, in England. But uh, look, it's up to that. There is an international recruiting agency uh, where where I were, were commissioned to do the, the search. Now I'm not talking about the CEO. I'm talking about the chairperson. Uh, and then it's up to when the new board is is fully appointed. Uh, that's the full twelve are there. Then they they search then for the new chief executive officer. But the new CEO mm. will not be a member of the board and will be more accountable to the board which hasn't been the position up to now. And the weakness was that the CEO was also, uh, you know, running, running the organisation in terms of the board and all of that. And that, that won't happen into the future. So you have more checks and balances mm. uh, in, in, in the board that it would be separated, uh, even though obviously the CEO will have to attend and, and will be, but he'll be more, he or she will be more accountable to the board than heretofore. And that's... Okay. that's uh, and what, what, what role has uh, the Oireachtas, your uh, uh, committee, uh, in this at this stage? Uh, because as an organisation that receives funding from the state, it should be accountable to the sports committee, your committee, uh, in uh, the Oireachtas. Uh, but uh, obviously the FAI has not been very cooperative up until now, uh, and that has led to this report. Uh, the Cosy report has been taken away from you and uh, handed on to the Gardaí. Uh, so is there any accountability in that sense? Well, we're happy that to get. Well, I mean, it's not we're happy it's gone to the Gardaí, but mm. if that's where the people who read it think it should go, well, I mean, but you have already investigated matters of a criminal nature, or, or mm. you know, so that's it. But uh, what, what is the function of your committee uh, uh, in well, this well, issue well, at this stage? Well, I think, I think well, that, that's a good question, Michael. Uh, our function is to do due diligence on all, on all annual reports that come in from mm. all the bodies, uh, and obviously, clearly, you know, this this is one of them. Um, so that's that's our role. Uh, we look at lots of other things in transport and tourism as well. So it's a very broad remit, but uh, I think it's a very important remit. Oh, absolutely. But uh, it's uh, been thwarted, has it not, in terms of making the FAI accountable to the well, I think, people of this country? Well, I mean, the, the, a lot of people would agree that obviously dog committees should have more power. But when that went to a referendum, the people decided that that, that shouldn't be the case. So in that respect, dog committees can make a finding while we can have a hearing about mm. an issue, whatever the dog committee is. You, you can ask people in, you can compel witnesses even, but you can't actually make a finding for or against an organisation. So effectively, you're quite right, they don't have the power, that particular power. But, um, mm. you know, I think that nevertheless, this, this controversy would never, you know, it would never be reaching the conclusions it's now reaching were it not for them having to come before the dog committee and the fact that the fact that they weren't as, as, as forthcoming as they should have been, I think there was a huge change in public opinion at that time. Mm. Uh, you know, when Mr. Laney um, uh, 
compelled his legal rights not to make any contribution. Okay, but uh, am, I, am I right in thinking that as things stand, uh, that uh, the FAI is working off its own bat, uh, that uh, it's not accountable to Sport Ireland, it's not accountable to the Minister, it's not accountable to the Oireachtas? Well, I mean, the point is, uh, it, 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 is, it, is, it is accountable to us for the money that it, that it, that it spends, uh, the state government money, it is accountable. And they agreed but, to the cosy orders which mm. examined, which went deeper than that, which went into other issues in the FAI, including their capacity. Uh, I haven't got the exact quote in front of me, but it's in the cosy uh, document mm. uh, to, to handle public funds. So that that was a very that was a very important um, issue. In other words, they didn't just look at the 2.9 million; they looked at all the other funds and all the processes and procedures within that organisation. And I mean, what we don't mm. want to be uh, having, having this debate all the time, what we want is to see change in the FAI, the new leadership, the new chairperson independent, the new independent four directors, uh, working with, uh, you know, obviously a new permanent CEO. Okay. <clears throat> and until you have that, you won't have... You, you won't have um, Okay, well, the saga continues. Uh, We'll leave it there for now, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us, as always. Fine Gael TD for Loud, Fergus O'Dowd, who is uh, the chairperson of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport. The Michael Reid Show. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, the guards have a, a number of incidents uh, to report on, and perhaps you can assist with uh, the investigations into these incidents. Garda Tara McManus of Drogheda Station joins us for the report this week, and we begin in Kilcock with a, a burglary that occurred on Monday, the 25th of November, and Garda are reissuing a, a, an appeal in relation to this. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, we just want to um, talk about an incident that was covered last week. But again, just to the seriousness, we just want to um, feature it again. So this was an incident that happened um, in Kilcock on Monday, the 25th of November at about 11 o'clock in the morning, where a man wearing a balaclava and armed with a pistol type of a weapon entered a house and um, demanded money and um, different items. Now, a struggle ensued because the injured party decided they didn't want to hand over and um, that culprit fled the scene. But we do have a good description of him. He is described as being between 5 foot 9 and 5 foot 10 in height, of a stocky build, aged around 34 or 35, had a local accent, wearing a balaclava, dark navy jacket, blue jeans and work boots. Um, also an interesting in that the culprit in this particular case actually called the injured party by his first name. So we don't believe this was a kind of a, a one-off opportunist incident. Um, obviously, there is um, he knew the injured party, so it is quite serious. So the Gardaí uh, in Dunboyne are looking after that and would appreciate any information. Okay, we go to Ashburn where Gardaí are investigating a separate burglary. This happened a week ago. This one happened on Tuesday last, the 26th of November. Overnight, a car stolen from a property um, at Bonog in Ashburn. So we're looking for a black Nissan Qashqai uh, with a 142 Meath Reg on it and that was stolen from a house overnight. Um, keys, we believe, were, were fished via the letterbox. So I suppose just again reminding people um, 
not to lock the doors with the car keys and leave the keys in the back of the door because thieves are fishing them out literally through the letterbox and heading off with your nice car. Okay, to determine feckin' and uh, an assault on a young woman, I think, last Thursday. Yeah, this one has received a lot of social media attention. Um, so we're just going to cover it today. So this happened um, in Termenfecken Village last Thursday evening, the 28th, about 8 o'clock in the evening. Uh, a female was walking home and she was attacked from behind by a male who... Um, who sexually assaulted her. Now, she happened to be carrying a bottle of wine and she gave him a good few thumps into the head with the bottle of wine um, and he um, uh, left the scene. Uh, He's just described as being wearing dark clothing and had his face covered with his hoodie. Um, Now, he probably bit off more than he could chew in that instant, but we are very, very anxious to speak to anyone who may have um, witnessed anything and who may have information. It is a very frightening instant. Okay, and uh, undoubtedly, uh, I'm sure you'd like uh, to track down uh, that individual and uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, he's uh, somebody who has problems of his own and Mm. could do with uh, some help. Anyway, we'll go to uh, Dundalk uh, and uh, some items stolen from a a shop last Thursday. Yeah, a jewellery shop there on Francis Street in Dundalk. Um, A female entered into the shop there and stole a silver clad appendage. Um, So again, we don't have any great description of her, but perhaps if somebody... um, is offered this for sale or notices somebody wearing something similar uh, in the Dundalk area, the Guardian Dundalk, Dundalk, excuse me, would be keen to talk to you. Okay, we go to Drogheda next uh, and uh, a question of fraud. Uh, This is uh, an incident uh, that happened last Thursday. Yeah, I suppose this one is just to, I suppose, warn people and to warn shop owners over the next couple of weeks. Obviously, everyone is out um, shopping and there's lots of money uh, exchanging hands and this particular instant um, counterfeit notes were used to pay for products in um, Dunn stores on West Street there in Drogheda so it's more I suppose just to, to make people aware to check their notes um, you know and, and just to be, to be aware that the counterfeit notes that are out there now are actually really really good and uh, look like the genuine thing but they're not and if you do offer you know if you do have them in your purse and you offer them um you know, you will be found out and and, and um, have them taken from you. Okay, a burglary to report on in Drogheda on Friday gone. This one happened at Fountain Hill in Mel. Um, family arrived home on Friday the 29th of November between 5pm and 11pm and to find that the house had um, the side door at the back of the house had been forced open and damage caused to the door and a number of items of jewellery had been taken from that house. So again if anyone was in around that area in Mel in Drogheda last Friday evening um, my colleagues here in Drogheda would be keen to speak to you. And we'll conclude with criminal damage in Drogheda on Sunday. Yeah this is a house um, that had um, the windows smashed in outside the premises there in Moneymore in Drogheda last Sunday the 1st of December that happened overnight and again my colleagues here in Drogheda will be keen to speak to anyone who have any information on that one Okay, all right. Uh, thank you indeed Uh, just uh, before we go you want to say thanks uh, to people who uh, helped uh, raise money for Special Olympics was it? Yes, uh, a number of my colleagues um, not myself I must say um, mm. plunged into the sea there at Clarehead on Saturday the Polar Plunge it's an annual event that's held there to raise money for Special Olympics Ireland so I just want to put out a little thank you to yeah. all the people involved uh, huge amounts of money uh, raised there every year and uh, 
fair play to the guards that did get into the water. I might um, try it myself next year. OK, we'll hold you to that. Great, thank <laughs> <Thanks> you. <laughs> Garda Tara McManus of uh, Drogheda Garda Station brings our programme to its conclusion today and uh, we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time next week. Our programme will return tomorrow morning, 9am uh, on LMFM. See you then. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. 